Okay. All right. Just a review of announcements. After Sunday morning, it's we won't have anything to announce anymore. Except for Camp Arete. How's it going, Jeff? What do you need? Two, three hundred more people? A nurse? Activities director? And two more male counselors. Oh, one more female counselor. Okay, you all heard that. So continue to pray for Camp Arete getting ready for the summer. Also, of course, the pastor's conference will be in full swing this time next week. So for those of you who are live streaming, there will not be Bible class on Tuesday night. Usually the week of the conference, we don't have Bible class. We just have the, the three intense days of the conference itself. And we still need volunteers, and we still need cookies. I meant to, that was the announcement I was trying to think of the other night. Somebody had written, a, had a typo, 7,500 cookies. It was 75 dozen cookies. That was, that typo got corrected. Last Thursday night, Ann Wright had an email to me by the time I got home saying not 7,500, that was a typo, 75 dozen. So we still need some more, some more cookie bakers, I believe. And then, of course, uh, uh, daylight Savings Time begins uh, Sunday morning, so Saturday night, set your clocks ahead an hour. And then we also need some men volunteers to help uh, set things up on, um, on Sunday morning. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, as usual, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. That is so that you can make sure that you're in right relationship with God, walking by the Spirit that in the event of personal sin, we're immediately shifting from operating according to the uh, Holy Spirit to operating according to the sin nature. The only way to recover is to confess sin, and instantly we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to come together this evening to focus upon you, to focus upon your plan for us as believers, to focus upon your word that is without error in the original languages and has been uh, translated for us into our language, that we may come to understand all these principles of doctrine. Father, we're thankful that that um, we have this church and this congregation 
for those who desire to know your word, to grow, to mature, to press forward. We're thankful for this nation that we have the freedom still to meet, to proclaim your word. And even though there are many organizations and forces and powers that are constantly working to erode our freedom to worship and to proclaim the truth of your word, we still have that. And, Father, we pray that we would continue to have that and that you would raise up solid leaders and that even though this is an extremely messy and strange election cycle, that you would uh, still work in this cycle to bring forward someone who will turn us back towards biblical principles. Father, we continue to pray for those in the congregation that uh, don't have jobs, that they would uh, soon find one, that you would open up doors and, and in the process also provide for them encourage them and strengthen them and also pray for Camp Arete and their uh, personnel needs this summer and we pray that you would provide provide those for them. Now Father we pray as we study your word tonight we will be challenged, encouraged, strengthened uh, by God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 back in our passage and we have gotten as far as verse 12, but you may not realize it, but the last time that, that I actually was in First Peter teaching verse by verse was on November the 19th. That was the Thursday before Thanksgiving. So Thursday night's been particularly hit hard because we had Thanksgiving, then we had Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, and I was teaching a Christmas special. And then I was gone for three Thursday nights when I went to Kiev, and so that has uh, meant that these nine lessons that we did on inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture uh, fell in between, developing that out from these these three verses in uh, in first peter developing that topic so it's been um almost 4 months since we had um any time in peter and not only that but next thursday night we're not going to be back in peter because we're going to be at the we're going to be here for the chafer conference so as i was uh working through the passage and it had been some time since i had looked at this this passage I thought it was a good time to review, to bring our thinking back into the context of First Peter so that we can understand what is, what is going on. Now, as is our custom, and my custom, is that when I teach through a book, often we hit important topics, important doctrines that have to be explored in more depth than what we find in a book. So that's what we've done uh, the last the last four months. So as we come back to First Peter, we need to talk a little bit about the context. Context is so very important. And what we see here is that major theme in Peter is adversity testing, glory, and grace. These terms are interconnected, and we find them again and again. And so... When we talk about understanding context, that context is what defines meaning. The more I do Bible study, the more I read, the more I study the Word, the more I realize that, that context, just understanding the structure and argument of a book, is many times as important as being able to understand the original languages. Because un, 
unlike the way some people may have uh, formed an opinion about language or the Greek or Hebrew, the, a Greek word can have a range of meaning. It's not precise. It may have some Greek words may have more precision than English words. We often hear the example of the fact that Greek has four different words for love, two of which are found in the scripture, uh, one in sort of a uh, compound word, and that that's more precise than just the English word for love. But there are other times in the scripture that you have uh, words such as knowledge, and you have two or three different Greek words that can express knowledge, and they're a little more precise, and that's going to be a little more precise than what you have in English. But then you also have times when English has a wider range of synonyms. English is such a rich language. Uh, much richer than and than, than Greek, uh, much much more vocabulary than Greek, and not only that, unlike Greek, English has been profoundly influenced by both the Bible and theology. So that you know, all you have to do is go outside of this country to a country that doesn't have the language, the English language heritage of theology that we have. And you go to Ukraine, you go to Russia, you try to teach these, uh, teach doctrines with precision, with words like justification and imputation and propitiation and redemption, expiation, all these different terms. You just don't have the, the, the developed theological terminology in those languages. And that's a country that has been impacted to some degree by, by Christianity. German doesn't have the precision. Uh, it's more precise than, than Russian. It's closer to English because there's a rich theological tradition in German as well. But then you go to places, um, you go to uh, Asian countries, you go to African countries. They just don't have the, the, the developed language to be able to communicate uh, with the kind of precision that English can. So it's, it, it's a misnomer to think that just because you know Greek or Hebrew that that solves your problems usually just creates the same number of problems only one step removed. You're, you're in, in Greek and Hebrew rather than in English. So when you've got a word that has a range of meaning, that the thing that informs it more than its usage in, um, in, in let's say, 5th century B.C. or even in the Septuagint, is going to be the immediate context how it's used. So the three, just like in, in real estate where you have the three laws of real estate or location, 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 location is just context. And so what matters in Scripture is context, context, context. And so it's really important to understand the importance of context. So, But there are three different areas of context that we need to talk about. It's not just, we're not just talking about what's in that verse that we're studying and the verse in front of it and the verse before it. There are three different contexts that, uh, that you need to be aware of when you're studying Scripture. The first is the literary context. The literary context for any verse of the Bible is not just, for example, we're looking at 1 Peter 1.12, the context is a paragraph that began in verse 3, so that's the immediate context. It may be part of a sentence or part of a subset of sentences 
that make up part of that paragraph. For example, verses 10 through 12 are closely related. That's part of the broader context of 3 through 12. That's part of the introduction to this epistle. That's part of the Petrine literature, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. That is part of Peter's statements, which would also include his statements in Acts and his statements in the Gospels. Uh, it's part of the epistolary literature of the New Testament, and that's part of the New Testament, and that's in the context of the whole Bible. So that's just one aspect. So oftentimes you can look at a piece, and it may be that, that you look at a sentence, you make a statement like, of this salvation in the beginning of verse 10, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, and if you just stop there, Though that word salvation may may be, and it usually is taken to refer to justification and the work of the Messiah on the cross. But as we saw in our previous study, that's not what that describes at all. It refers to the this salvation of ten, refers back to the salvation of your souls, which is the end result of your faith, so that would be glorification. That would be part of the of the context. So something that looks right in one context is often transferred over to another context because it's the same word. And there's a technical term for that called illegitimate totality transfer. How's that for a mouthful? I want everybody to learn that by next week. Illegitimate totality transfer. That's where you have a word, you see a word salvation, you automatically think phase one so what you've done is you've transferred to that word the meaning that you're, you're most familiar with, and that's illegitimate. Now, that, that, a little bit of that is seen in this diagram here, where we have on the left a piece of pizza. The context matters. That's what it says at the bottom. So you have a piece of pizza that's on a plate. You have a bottle of wine to the left and a glass of wine to the right. And that's something that looks very appetizing. But on the right-hand side, you take that same piece of pizza and you put it in another context where it's sitting on top of a manhole cover in the middle of a street. doesn't look quite so appetizing anymore. That's become a different piece of pizza now. The context matters. It's no longer looking at something that's desirable, okay? So all of these things are, are important. So we're going to look at the first kind of context, and that's literary context. And as I talked about, it's a context of the whole Bible, then down to whether it's Old or New Testament, then whether it's an epistle or the gospel or, or what, where it is in terms of the section, the subsection, the paragraph, or the verse. And it's that immediate context that gives meaning to the word. Take a word like tall, a word that we use in a lot of different contexts. If someone is short, if you have someone that's five feet tall or five two or five three, they look at somebody that's five ten or five eleven and say, that's a tall person. But if you're, if you're six foot or six foot two, Tall doesn't describe somebody who's 5'8 or 5'9 or 5'10. Tall may, for that person, tall may describe somebody who's 5'7 or 5'8 or, I mean, 6'7 or 6'8 or 7 foot tall. I was over here at Costco one time and I was just astounded. There was a Chinese couple in there and the woman was at least 6'7. 
and the man was well over seven foot. I'd never seen a couple that 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 large. But there's a section of China where everybody is tall like that. So tall can mean different things. We talk about a child. We may look at a child and say, oh, he's gotten so tall. Well, now he's three feet tall, and the last time you saw him, he was two feet tall. So, see, tall changes according to context. And then we talk about a tall tale. And a tall tale is, again, something totally different, a totally different meaning from talking about somebody being tall. Or you can go down to a coffee shop and order a tall coffee, which sounds like it might be large, but it's not as large as a grande or a venti. Okay? So it's all relative. Context determines uh, the meaning of the word. So literary context. What does, how is a word used in the, in the, par, in the sentence, in the paragraph, in the section, in, in the epistle? And that's going to be defined by asking what are we talking about? What, what, what surrounds it? Second context is historical context. Historical context. We often hear the phrase, the Bible needs to be interpreted in light of the time in which it was written. That statement is often misused by people who say, see, they were a pre-scientific mindset. They didn't understand science. They had a mythological view. So, so we have to understand that that's how they're speaking in terms of this mythological language. Well, that's just garbage. Historical cultural context, first of all, you have to understand who the author is. That's why we take time at the beginning of a, of a study. Who was Peter? Who was Paul? Who was Matthew? Who was Samuel? Understanding who they were, what their background was as far as we, we can come to understand, and, and what would inform their, their language and their, their use of language. So you have the, in terms of historical context, the first one is the context of the author. Who is he? Where is he from? What's his background? The second context is the context of the recipients. Who are they? Where were they from? What's their background? Is their background Egyptian? Is their background Babylonian? Is their background Assyrian? Is their background um, uh, Jewish? Is their background Roman, Greco-Roman, pagan? What's the background of the recipients? What do they know? What is their What is their thinking? And that is mostly inferred from the reading itself. So that means you have to read the information again and again. Some of that information we can glean from other epistles to a small degree or from the book of Acts, which gives us an introduction to the main characters, Peter, Paul, uh, a few others. And some of it we can glean from extra-biblical history. We can read good historical uh, works that talk about the culture of the Romans, the culture of the Greeks, the culture of the Mesopotamians, the culture of the Babylonians, etc. So we have to understand the, those cultures, and we have to also understand how how language was used within those cultures. We have to understand uh, the use of idioms with, within that that particular culture. So we look at the literary context, we look at the historical context, but the third context is the context of the modern reader, the context of the modern reader. Often today, we have people who are influenced because of the world system. They're influenced by all kinds of different 
modern philosophical frameworks. They could be somebody who's very influenced to think only in terms of gender identification and gender politics. They may be thinking in terms of uh, feminism. They may be thinking in terms of uh, of same-sex issues, whatever it is. But just today I heard the story of uh, a friend of mine was telling me who's taken an Old Testament intro class at a, at a school here in Houston, and he's a little bit older than everybody else in the class, maybe about 10, 10 years, and uh, I've been working with him for a while, and I've had him reading through the Bible, so he's read all the way through the Old Testament, he's into the New Testament, and he's just astounded at the level of biblical ignorance that exists in the classroom. And one of their assignments, in the fourth, and, and I think... I. You know, uh, I think the professor's doing a good job. He breaks them up into groups in the class, gives them a few minutes to read through a section of Scripture, and then they have to give a summary report of what they've read. And so they were, it's an OTI class, so they're going through the book of Judges, so he would assign the different judges to different groups of two or three people. Then they give a little report. Well, he was telling the story that, that last week in class that there were two girls about 19, 20 years old, and they were given the assignment to read through the the story about Samson and then report on what Samson was all about. And see, their their context is as a as a millennial is it's all about them. So this one girl gives her report, and her whole report centers on the fact that poor old Samson's mother didn't like the girl he married. See, she's just reading that within her own very limited subjective emotional framework. No idea of anything about the scripture or objective meaning of the author or the fact that Samson's raised up by God to deliver the Philistines and fails and that he's a great woman. None of this, just that his mother wouldn't, didn't like the girl he married because he married this, married, married a Philistine. Then I remember stories uh, that I would hear from uh, students at Dallas uh, back in the 80s and into the 90s, and for all I know it still goes on today, where when they first opened up THM classes to women. Now, a lot of times people say, well, isn't that good? Well, it changed the whole dynamic, especially when you get women who have uh, been fed a line of feminism and psychology and, 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 and uh, subjectivism their whole life, and I remember one guy telling me, he said, so we're, we're going through the exegesis in Hebrew of, of, uh, of Abraham in Genesis. And this one girl keeps wanting to dominate the conversation because all she wants to talk about is how Hagar and Sarah felt about this. See, it changes the way you interact with Scripture. So the context, you have to understand... Each person who reads Scripture has to understand what their mental context is. We all bring a framework to the text. And if we're objective, we're going to let the text change our framework. But a lot of people uh, throughout the history just go and they want to force the text to mean uh, whatever uh, they want it to mean. The Marxist reads every story that has anything to do about money or any parable with landowners in terms of some sort of anti-capitalistic framework. A Calvinist will come and he'll see something about the sovereignty of God and determinism in every passage. The Baptist will come and he'll see water baptism or evangelism or justification in every single passage that he reads. 
And there are others today within a reformed camp, I've just become aware of this, that there is a, a, a new idea in hermeneutics, and that is that every passage of Scripture somehow has to talk directly about Jesus. Now, you can just think of a number of passages where that verses where that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But that's becoming a hermeneutical principle primarily within the Reformed camp, the, the Calvinist camp. Every passage has to be talking about Jesus. So you're reading a lot of stuff into a passage instead of letting the passage uh, speak for itself. And one of the things that I'm pointing out with all of these examples is that you have to think outside of yourself in an objective framework to understand meaning in any sort of written text or any sort of verbal verbal utterance. And if you don't get the context right, then then the results can be tragic or they can be quite humorous. A lot of a lot of comedy shows. I mean Seinfeld I think is really popular for this kind of thing and it happens in other in other shows as well where people think they're talking about one thing and they're actually talking about something else, so it becomes quite humorous. And and one thing that, that I was reminded of was was a uh <clears throat> an episode in the old uh 60s sitcom, the uh, the Adams family. And the Adams family sitting around they're trying to find dear old uh Uncle Fester a uh a bride. He needs a wife. So they've been advertising for a bride and this this young bride to be bride hopeful uh is coming to interview in in the afternoon and the doorbell rings and they're just all excited cuz this this girl is going to come to interview and they're going to find a bride for uncle fester and and unknown to them it's the avon lady and the Avon lady comes in, and she, of course, thinks that she's selling cosmetics and everything to, to them. And so everything that she says makes sense within her framework that she's talking about selling cosmetics, and she even offers a free sample. <laughs> and then on the other side, the, the Adams family is all interpreting everything that she says as if she's applying to be his wife. And so you just get a, a lot of humor in the whole situation because people don't understand the right context. They misinterpret everything. Well, that's pretty much what happens with a lot of people in the Bible. So uh, we've seen this. Oh, I was going to show this picture. There's the Adams family for you. If you, I, I wanted to go back to the old show rather than the, the new movie. So it's important to understand context. So when we understand the context, what we have to do is, first of all, we have to really read the whole thing. We're all familiar with pastors. In fact, I remember there was a, I think it was 10-volume set or 6-volume set, 6-volume set, that that Donald Gray Barnhouse was a very famous uh, pastor. He was dispensational. He was a strong Calvinist, but he was dispensational. He was a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in the middle part of the of the 20th century, and he was very popular, had a nationwide radio show, and um, uh, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse would uh, taught through Romans. It took him 10 years. Basically, he taught the whole Bible. He wasn't teaching Romans. He was t- teaching the Bible through the lens of Romans. But you, you never saw the, the, the context 
because you're spending all of your time analyzing every cell, every electron, every proton, every neutron, everything that was there. And you never came up for breath and looked at the whole forest to understand how the trees fit into the overall overall pattern. And that often opens the door to a lot of misunderstanding and miscommunication about the text. And, of course, one of the great illustrations of this is a word that is important for what we're studying in First Peter is the word salvation. And salvation refers to these three phases or stages of salvation we've gone over. You know this very well, that in phase one, it talks about being saved from the penalty of sin. But then the word can refer to phase two, which is being, which is talking about being saved from the, from the power of sin, or it could be talking about being saved from the presence of sin, which is glorification when we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord, either through physical death or at the rapture sometime in the future. And what we see in First Peter and what we have seen is that as Peter is emphasizing this issue of, of adversity and uh, the fiery trials that come upon them and the suffering that they'll go through and the difficulties that they'll go through is that the context is talking about salvation in the sense of deliverance through and from the trials in their spiritual life. It's talking about that phase two concept of, of salvation, or as I've pointed out already in verses 9 and 10, talking about the end result of our spiritual growth, which is the deliverance of our lives ultimately into heaven. So it can refer to uh, the end of our faith, or it can refer, as I pointed out when we taught this, the end of our faith in that trial which is the deliverance of our life in that trial. It's not phase three. It's deliverance of our of our soul in and through that particular trial. Not and so it's that salvation, that phase two salvation, that phase two deliverance from the trial that the prophets are looking at. Why? Because in that process we glorify God and we look at at the word glory and how many times it appears in that, that pre- previous uh, section, and as it appears throughout um, uh, throughout this book, verse 8 talks about, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And again and again, talking about the concept of glory. So as we back up, looking at the, at the uh, particular context, we need to make sure we understand the whole thing. So we need to sit down, read through First Peter, which is what I do when I'm studying a book, is I'll read through it over and over and over again. Sometimes I try to memorize it or memorize large chunks of it. Sometimes when I get through studying a book, I almost have it memorized in the Greek. I've read through it so many, uh, so many different times. But that's critical, and you think back when you were probably uh, pushing puberty or just after puberty as you were discovering boys or boys were discovering you or girl, or uh, you were discovering girls, something like that. And, of course, we'll modernize this a little bit. You get a text message or an email or a note, and you might read it. And say, oh, that's really great. She said this about me. Isn't that great? And then the more you read it, the more you think about it, the more you wonder, well, did I really understand that right? Maybe, why didn't she say this? What did she mean by that? Why didn't she say that? Why did she leave this out? 
and you begin to ask all those questions, and some people might call that overthinking, but it's just truly analyzing what is being said in terms of the whole context. And that's what we, what we do when we read through the Bible is trying to understand uh, the context. And often, as you've noted, like uh, we've seen examples of this as I've gone through Matthew just, just recently as I've studied through Matthew uh, 18, 19, now we're in 20, uh, 21, seeing how all these passages going to, what was it, 2028 20, is where this section ends. The more I've gone into this, the more I've had to go back and refine and tighten the focus of my understanding of what's happening in that particular context. And then once you understand what the, what the context is, then that, that provides, uh, provides meaning. So when we look at First Peter, we recognize that this epistle talks about a lot of different things and a lot of different doctrines and a lot of different ideas, but everything that it talks about is wrapped around the concept of surviving adversity with joy, very similar to what we find in James and a very similar, uh, similar vocabulary to what we find in James. And we realize that it's not just the closing section from chapter 3, verse 13 to 14, uh, 17, that emphasizes suffering, but that that is the sort of the climax of a whole progression of instruction that is all related to facing and handling and surmounting adversity and difficulty uh, in this life. When you just look at these um, four verses in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, we notice it talks about joy in the first verse, and this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, and then it talks about trials. You're grieved by trials. We are tested by fire in verse 7. We, have, um, we are delivered through the deliverance of our souls when we get down to verse 9. We also see an emphasis on glory at the end of verse 7. Uh, that were tested by fire, that it may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 8, talking about joy inexpressible and full of glory. So the emphasis here is on the fact that trials grieve us. They're serious. They're difficult. Some people get the idea that, well, I don't really suffer. Some people have a skewed idea of suffering. But suffering means that you're going through difficulties in life. You're going through opposition, and and maybe because of doctrine, you may not feel like some things are that difficult, but there can be other things that that are difficult. Um, But the focal point here is, in the broad context, is ultimately on what God provides for us. In verse 3, we talked about being blessed or being happy by because of the work of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ at salvation, at justification, phase one, we're born again to a living hope. Hope is a very positive word. If we don't have hope, why are we, why, why do we hold on to the Christian life? The Christian life gives us hope. It gives us meaning. It defines purpose that even though things are really bad, there's an end game that may not be in this life, it may be in the next life when there's vindication, when before all our our trust in God is vindicated before all of mankind and the angels. We have, we're promised an incorruptible, undefiled inheritance. 
in verse 4, and that we're kept by the power of God for this goal of salvation. In verse, in verse 5, through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now that would be, that would be phase 3. So as we look at this, we need to just think our way through uh, uh, Peter just a little bit. The first major division goes from 1 Peter 1.13, which is what we're about to start. The introduction covers the first 12 verses, laying down the major themes that are going to be developed within the epistle, a lot like, like James, except it's a little bit, the intro is a little longer in James. But that first major division goes from 1 Peter 1.13 to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Then there's a shift, a little bit of a shift in focus. It, this first section doesn't even mention um, suffering. Once you get out of that introduction, you don't have another mention of suffering till you get to the next section. It focuses, though, on key elements of the Christian way of life and key elements of spiritual growth because we have to master the fundamentals of the spiritual walk before we get to the point of applying them and talking about how they apply to facing and surmounting uh, suffering and adversity and, and difficulty. So the focus begins with this initial command that we find in verse 13. It starts off with the word therefore, which means we have to see what it's there for. That's a little, maybe you'll remember that someday. We have to see what it's there for, and it's drawing a conclusion from the introduction that in light of these things that have been said in the introduction, we need to do certain things. And so we have these mandates. We're to gird up the loins of our mind, we're to be sober, and we're to rest our hope fully on grace. So those are three things that, that happen. But it starts off with a very odd idiom for our day, girding up the loins of your mind. That's the New King James Version. What does it mean to gird something? How many times have you used that verb in the last six months? Okay, what does it mean to gird up something? And what are, we have a pretty good idea of what loins are, but what are the loins of our mind, the loins of our thinking? What does this have to do with? And so we have to understand that idiom. And what it basically describes is that in the ancient world where they didn't wear blue jeans and they didn't wear yoga pants and they didn't wear uh, things that would get in the way when they were moving and, and working out or exercising or trying to do anything, that if they were going to work, these flowing robes and tunics would get in the way. So especially if you were a soldier, what you needed to do is to pull up your robe and tie it and belt it with a... Uh, with, with your belt so that it would not get in the way and you would be free of any uh, hindrances, anything that would distract you in combat, anything that would get in your way while you're working in the field. And so girding up your loins is the idea, number one, of getting rid of anything that prevents you from accomplishing the task. That's part of the idea. Any kind, Anything that would hinder you or distract you from accomplishing a task when it talks about the loins of your mind, it means to clean up your thinking so that you're not distracted 
through uh, daydreaming. You're not distracted by uh, other kinds of, of thoughts or images that keep you from focusing on God's task, God's mission for you. Now, that is not necessarily saying that you need to be thinking about evangelism all day, every day, but that if you're at work, if you're girding up your, the loins of your mind and part of your job is to work as unto the Lord, then you're going to get rid of things in your thinking that keep you from being a good worker. You're not going to let extracurricular personal things get in the way of your performing the job for the employer that has hired you to work for him. So girding up your minds can have a number of different applications in the Christian life, but the basic idea is to get rid of the things that get in your way from accomplishing what God wants you to accomplish. It has the idea of focusing your thinking on what God wants you to be thinking about. So it's it's further defined in the list as being sober. And being sober doesn't mean just to be uh, free of any kind of alcoholic or drug or marijuana impairment. It has to do with clear objective thinking. Well, the only way to have clear objective thinking is to know the Word of God and to understand the objective thinking of our Creator so that we can think and live as He would have us to think and live. We can understand the details and the issues of life because He's the one who created things, and we can reach the right, the right understanding and the right balance as we, as we look at different, different things in life. So when we are girding up the loins of our mind, we're focusing on um, uh, and we're resting in the hope that comes from grace. It's not a mindless hope. It's not just a wishful thinking or optimism, but it's a confident expectation in what God has, has provided for us. So what happens starting in verse 13 is we're giving a list of key things that we should do in order to be able to face adversity. We're to focus our thinking, remove distractions in verse verse 13. We're to be sober. We're to have objective thinking also in verse 13. Third thing from verse 13 is we are to rest our hope fully on the grace of God. Then this leads to verse... um, 15, where we're told that we are to be holy in all of our conduct. We're to live lives that are set apart to the service of God. From the time we get up in the morning till we go to bed at night, we need to live a life that is consistent with being a called servant of God. We're to be holy in all of our conduct. We're to conduct ourselves in fear in verse 17. That is not being afraid. That is not having a phobia. That's not being a homophobe or whatever the popular or negative phobia, whatever it is today. It is showing respect and fear for the authority of God because one day there will be an accountability at the judgment seat of Christ. So we are to conduct ourselves in fear. And in verse 22, we are to love one another. In uh, chapter 2, verse 1, we have a list of things to lay aside, and when we get there, we'll realize that that laying aside the malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking is merely a summary of different sins, and the way we lay them aside is through confession of sin. It's a grammatical structure 
that tells us what the prerequisite is for being able to fulfill the command of verse 2, which is to desire uh, the milk uh, of the word. And it's interesting that that word for desire is the same word that we have back here in in um, uh, back here in verse verse uh, verse eleven, uh, verse, verse excuse me verse ten. Of this salvation the, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, prophesied the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of God who was in them was indicating He would testify beforehand the sufferings of Christ and glories that would follow. Um, oh, excuse me. Desire is down at the end. That's where it is. Uh, it's the desire the angels have to look into the spiritual truths that are being worked out in our lives. That word there at the end of verse 12, things which angels desire to look into, is the same word uh, that's used in verse 2. We are to desire. We're to have a, a, a hunger, uh, a, a hunger and a thirst to know the word of God. We're to desire this, the milk of the word. And before we can do that, we have to strip off the sin in our life, and we do that through confession of sin. So that's the first major division, and it goes down to about verse 10. And then the second major division goes from 2.11, which begins, Behold, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So that's a, the fleshly lusts are set up to war against the soul. And in contrast, Peter says, have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And where he develops that theme is that when you go through any kind of suffering or adversity, if you have a dishonorable life, then you're just getting what you, what you should get. If you do wrong and you suffer, well, that's what you should expect. But if you do right and you suffer, he's going to say, well, that, that pleases God. That, that, that pleases God, and that's part of spiritual growth. So in the second major division, he's talking about standing in grace, which means humility. You can't have grace without humility. Humility basically means subordination to an authority. Jesus humbled himself by being obedient. So humility is related to obedience, and that means that if we're under a human authority, you can count on it. You have some sinful person, man, woman, older, younger. If you're under authority, you've got somebody who, if they're giving vent to their sin nature, you're in trouble. And it doesn't mean to fight back. It means to submit, to go along and to make, you know, make peace with the situation and deal with it and not to be involved in a conflict. And this is what, what Peter is going to, in, going to talk about. He talks about uh, submitting to every ordinance of man. Now, that doesn't mean that we submit to a law that is contradictory, to, contrary to scripture, but we're to submit to every law. The king is supreme or governors. All of these are established authorities by God, so that he says, this is the will of God. You mean I have to obey Nero? See, Nero was the emperor at the time. You mean I have to obey Nero? I have to do what Barack Obama says? Or, or, this is an unfair judicial system because they've basically thrown out the Constitution. Why should I obey them? Because they're still the constitutionally established uh, government, even though they are doing wrong. Two wrongs don't make a right. 
Just because they're wrong doesn't give you the right to be wrong. It's fundamental. This is the will of God that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, not by rebelling against them, not by overthrowing their power, but um, putting to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a place for challenging unjust authority within the structure of law. There certainly is. But we don't use uh, our freedom as an opportunity for vice, verse 16, summarized in verse 17, honor all people, which means respect, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor, goes back to that same word, honor the king, even when he is not honorable. Even if he, it doesn't say honor the king if he's a good, honorable man. Honor the king if he's a corrupt, low-life reprobate. That's hard. What's going to happen? There's going to be suffering in those kinds of in, in environments. And, and so the issue is, well, how can we do that? That just doesn't seem right to submit to someone in authority when they're wrong. Well, let's have a little example here. Let's talk about this for just just a minute. And so Peter gives the example in verse 20. What credit is it then if when you are beaten for your fault, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. You're not fighting back. And then we get into the classic example. Because Christ also suffered for us. He was unjustly accused of a variety of crimes that led to his being crucified on the cross. He didn't fight back. He didn't slap back. He didn't uh, revile in return. But he submitted to the unjust authorities which led to him being crucified on the cross. That's the example. So we say, why should I obey a government authority or any authority that's unjust? And... Peter's response is that Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. It doesn't get any more clear than that. Do what Jesus did. I always hated that little saying, what would Jesus do? That's so subjective. The Bible says do what Jesus did, know what the Bible says, and do what he, he did. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but committed himself to him, that is God, who judges rightly, who himself bore our sins, that's Jesus, unjustly, in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. That's his argument. It's a pretty convicting argument. And then we go on into uh, chapter from from. Uh, Finishing up to this goes down, this argument goes down to verse twelve, and it talks about other areas of authority, wives being submissive to their husbands, but the guy's a lazy, no good drunk. Didn't see that exception stated in the scripture anywhere. Husbands also have their responsibility that they are to live with their wives with understanding and giving them honor and respect. Okay, calling and then. In verses 8 through 12, it talks about not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but but blessing, that you may inherit a blessing. It's, we play the long game, not the short game. Okay, then we get down into the next section. 
which is the command to stand in grace, which will transform our thinking and how we respond to adversity. We have to understand grace. We talk about it and talk about it and talk about it, but truly understanding it in the core of our souls is difficult. Why do we do this? We stand in grace, according to verse 14, that so that we might suffer for righteousness' sake. Now, I bet when you got saved and somebody said, you want to have a happy and meaningful life or you want to know how to uh, enjoy the plan of God, that they didn't say, are you ready to sign up to suffer for righteousness' sake? That wasn't the tagline in the gospel presentation that, that got your attention. In fact, if they said it, which they probably didn't, it was probably something that didn't register. You were already suffering for unrighteousness' sake. You just wanted to have a reason so it might have some value maybe. So um, we, we uh, stand in grace so that we can suffer for righteousness' sake. When we do so, we show that we have hope in adversity. We have something in our soul that gives us a focus so that even when we're overwhelmed with adversity, we can have a positive outlook because we're not looking at the next two or three days or two or three months or two or three years. We're looking at the long term, the long game with eternity with the Lord. He goes on to say that in doing this, we might be reviled that we would be defamed, verse 16, and reviled. Uh, our good conduct in Christ might be reviled, verse 16. And then Peter says, For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He's, that, that's almost a, a, a principal repeat of earlier when he says, What credit is it when you're beaten for your faults? If you take it patiently, we deserve it. But when we're beaten for something we didn't do, that's when we just want to react. But if we take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Why? Because we're trusting in him and his justice. As Abraham said back in Genesis chapter 19, shall not the the righteous judge of all the world do what is good? There's a focus in this section on... Um, on glorification that, that comes up in 3.13 to, to, to uh, 19. Five times uh, suffer, glory, is, uh, excuse me, glory is mentioned. Uh, five times suffering, fiery trials, reproach are mentioned several times in 4.12 through, uh, through 16. It's about glorifying the Lord in the long, the long run. Okay, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. It, the, the suffering always has a purpose. And this concludes, um, uh, it goes on down into, into chapter 4. Excuse me, I, I jumped ahead to chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Uh, down and following. That's where we have the notes from 7 through, or in 4, 7 through uh, 18, we have the references to, to glory, especially 12 and following. That was a reference there. All of this section from 3.13 down to 4.19 is emphasizing that when we handle suffering through the Word of God, 
then it brings glory to God. And that's our ultimate purpose and ultimate, ultimate focus. And then starting with chapter 5, we get to the conclusion, uh, and it's again talking about the sufferings of Christ. Uh, comes out of this discussion of the sufferings of Christ in chapter 4, verse 13, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding glory. So then we get down to chapter 5. The focus uh, again continues with the sufferings of Christ, the elders among you whom I exhort, I whom I have a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Notice how he connects suffering with glory. The suffering is for today toward the end game of the glorification of God. And this is emphasized again and again as we go through this particular section. So what we see is that the structure of First Peter and the th- major theme in First Peter has to do with suffering to bring about ultimate glory. And this is what we see at the end of uh, the introduction I've talked about before, receiving the end of our faith, which is the salvation of our soul. That is, we're, um, we're getting the result of our dependence upon the Lord. I talked about this the last time. It's the end result, which is uh, in time, the end result of our trusting God through the trial. It brings about the salvation of our souls, which is an idiom for the salvation of our life or the deliverance of our life in the midst of these particular trials. And then we looked at the verses we looked at last time, or they've been the structure for our study of inerrancy and inspiration in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, talking about this salvation. That's that glorification that comes from suffering. That's what the prophets are looking into. Notice the prophets in the Old Testament are studying what they're, what's revealed to them, trying to grasp the understanding of why does God allow suffering in this life. It's interesting, the first book written in the Old Testament wasn't Genesis, it was Job. What's the theme of Job? How to understand suffering, how to understand why God brings adversity uh, into this life. And the prophets are, look at the words that are used. They, in, they inquire, they search carefully. They're searching for the manner of time. Uh, the Spirit of Christ was in them indicating when this would happen. Uh, they see the principle of the suffering of Christ and the glories that follow. But they're not the only ones that are looking. At the end, we see that, that things are also the angels are looking into this. Not just the prophets are trying to understand the doctrine of adversity and suffering as it relates to glory, but the angels are looking at that as well. And this word that's translated desire is the word epithumeo, which in some contexts is translated lust. It is a strong desire. It can be for something right or for something wrong. When it's for something wrong, it has the idea of lust. When it ha- it's looking at something that's, that we should desire uh, positively, then it's, uh, it's translated desire. We're to desire the sincere, sincere milk of the word. And so this just brings us a reminder to a particular doctrine, and I just want to hit a few verses here, and that is that we are observed by angels. We're observed by angels because they are learning things about God's grace, and God's faithfulness, 
and they're learning things about the relation of adversity to glory that they cannot learn through their own experience. So they learn it through watching us. And the Bible talks about different ways in which we're watched. Uh, the, the angels, that is the elect angels, rejoice over the salvation of any person, any individual that trusts in Christ. We see this in Luke 15. Jesus says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, likewise I say to you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That repetition is important. Angels are watching, and they throw a pep rally every time they see somebody trust in Christ as Savior. They have a huge party. The second passage is that what we see is that during the time that Christ was on the earth, that he was watched by the angels as well. Uh, this applies, the, the passage itself is talking about his appearance before the angels after the resurrection, but it would apply to his whole life from the angels who announced his birth in Luke chapter 2 all the way through to the angels who were uh, present with the apostles when Jesus ascended to heaven. First uh, Timothy 3.16, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, and that's not just casual glancing, that's intently watching, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in, in glory. We also have passages that indicate that in the church age, angels are watching members of the church, members of God's royal family, to see how they live out the Christian life. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, Paul says, I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. So their lives are an open book to be witnessed by the angels. In Ephesians 3.10, Paul says, To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to, by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That term principalities and powers refers to the hierarchies among the angels. And then in uh, 1 Timothy 5.21, as uh, Paul closes out his epistle to Timothy. He says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. So with that, we wrap up this little reminder and rehearsal of what First Peter is all about. And next time, we'll come back and begin in verse 13, talking about the general principles that are to characterize every believer's spiritual life. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to uh, recognize that there is a plan and purpose for opposition, hostility, uh, for adversity, for persecution, that we live in the devil's world and we are subject to a fallen, corrupt environment. And that as we want to live for you, we can anticipate that there will be unjust reaction. And that this gives us an opportunity to exercise grace and love and mercy and forgiveness and to focus on the qualities that characterized 
the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we can only do that if we learn the Word of God under the ministry of the Spirit of God and walk by the Spirit of God, then you use that to conform us to the image of the Son of God. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study tonight. In Christ's name, amen.